Robert, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Uh, so um, let's start off by just uh, giving people some some background about the Buckeye Institute and the work you've done and and its history and and you're you're ostensibly a free market advocate who's also a lawyer and I thought those were mutually exclusive things but <laughs> but tell me what that's about too you know sometimes it can happen so yeah. Buckeye Institute we're a free market think tank based in Ohio uh, founded in 1989 uh, and so we're really you know we have a couple of big buckets that we work on economic liberty issues and we also work on legal issues both from a policy perspective and also from litigation and uh, the second it has been a little bit more recently. Uh, I took over Buckeye about nine years ago after having worked in D.C. and having taught law and done a few other things. Um, and uh, uh, at the time, they did not have a litigation center, but uh, being a lawyer, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So sooner or later, we were going to get into the litigation lawyer's gonna, game. Lawyer's going to sue? It's kind of how it works. Yeah. So. So we started off with uh, doing amicus briefs and, and expanded into direct litigation, uh, you know, at first on some constitutional questions with regard to First Amendment rights, uh, and that now we've expanded into uh, a lot of post, you know, sort of COVID or post-COVID litigation um, involving tax policy, involving mandates and the like. So, Yeah, I, I remember when uh, the CDC first mandated that you didn't have to pay your rent anymore even i was surprised i'm like can they do that but there's been this like insane administrative overreach uh, with covid it seems just like a blank check yeah no i mean this is and this is sort of a general concern that we've had since the beginning is the use of these emergency powers and you know one of the problems that you tend to see is once government has used a power once in an emergency, it's not prone to go ahead and let that power go. So, I mean, the perfect example is rent control in New York City. So rent control in New York actually began during World War II as part of a national uh, rent control act. Uh, when that expired, the state of New York then went ahead and passed a new rent control statute, which uh, I think it lasted two or four years. They renewed it again, renewed it again, renewed it during uh, uh, the Korean War. Again, citing back to World War II, you know, fast forward. In 2019, in December, the state of New York repassed a rent control statute, which expanded the rent control in place, hearkening back to the original cause of the crisis, World War II. So, you know, Government knows how to milk a crisis and to to uh, uh, keep this the uh, a power that it's accreted to itself and to continue using it. So so when the whole pandemic began, you saw that you know this oh no it's this is just temporary use of power, you know, but in the law oftentimes these temporary uses of power those become precedents to expand and enlarge government power uh, into even even further reaches of our lives. If you take a look, whether it's the eviction moratorium by the CDC or the OSHA mandate with regard to vaccines, in both cases, there's just really almost no limiting principle. I mean, the idea here is if they can if the federal government can use the CDC to tell you how it is that you can control your own property or OSHA to force employers to either fire 
you know, sort of well-trained employees who don't actually pose a risk to the workforce or face draconian fines, what can't they do? Yeah. And and I find and I, I want to very much get into the uh, vaccine mandates because I know you're you've been intimately involved in pushing back against that, but I, I have a question because um, because I assume your the balance of your work is between the state capital in Ohio and and federal litigation like this. Um, what is your take on governors that? have used emergency powers essentially as a blank check. Gavin Newsom just gave himself an extension on his blank check powers. And it, it seems like a dilemma for constitutional conservatives that we're always harping on the 10th Amendment and let's push power back to the states. I mean, at least there are places like Florida that that have a different approach of that. But do, do governors have this blank check? Well, part of that depends on, on state law. And so one of the things that we've pushed for. If you take a look, first of all, at the challenges in the states that were effective uh, in the courts to the use of, of governors or health directors' powers, it tended to be where they overstepped the limits of those powers as they were, as they were defined by the legislature or by the Constitution. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think oftentimes in the liberty movement, we want to go straight for the this violates, you know, your rights to property, to contract, to, you know, core individual liberties. And oftentimes those sorts of challenges were less successful than challenging you exceeded the duration uh, that you're permitted to do, you know, to act under. You exceeded your authority by, you know, intruding into this area. Looking at sort of the, you know, the somewhat less sexy but more constraining on government limitations that were written in ended up being more effective from a litigation perspective. And so, you know, as things have gone along, we've, we've looked at and a number of other groups have looked at, okay, how is it that we can actually make sure that these emergency acts are written in a way that you don't have governors or health directors who, or whoever it is who's exercising this power acting in an unconstrained fashion. That said, I think it is interesting. I mean, you point out it really was, I mean, prior to the Biden administration, I think the glaring example of the Fed stepping into it was the CDC's uh, eviction moratoria. Um, which originated uh, under Trump. It did. Yeah. And, you know, which I think some people forget. And then, then of course, it, you know, it lapsed and they, you know, you had the whole back and forth where Biden said, oh, Congress needs to act on it. And then when Congress didn't, he went ahead and did it anyway. And, and finally, the court, after sort of taking a pass, went ahead and, uh, and issued a stay against that going forward. But that really, the fact that that was the one area really goes to sort of the, the fact that Federalism really was, for the most part, respected uh, up until now, which is to say the Constitution really delegates the authority with regard to health regulation to state to the states and potentially from the states to local governments. Um, the federal government just really doesn't have that authority, and that really sort of gets to the core of a lot of the problems that we see with uh, with the vaccine mandates that are coming from the federal government. It's just well beyond the purview, the power, the authorities of the federal government to weigh into these sorts of questions. Yeah, like, in, and, and, and you said this in the Wall Street Journal, basically, if they can do this, they can do anything about oh. anything. It's a literal blank check. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you take a look, you know, just 
jumping into OSHA. I mean, OSHA's mandate is to provide for safe workplaces. If they can go ahead and regulate whether or not individual employees are getting vaccines because they they purport that this is a grave danger and you know, sort of rush through and sort of bypass all the ordinary procedures to do this on an emergency basis, you know, look at all the things that government says end up being bad for your health. Uh, the CDC says this about firearms in the home. They say this about Instagram and social media. They say it about smoking. They say it about trans fats. You know, it particularly now as more and more people are working from home, you could see just you know a huge expansion of OSHA's authority into people's everyday law, individual lives at home. And I think that really kind of gets to what's at issue here. It, so White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain has this sort of infamous retweet that he did uh, where he said the – Twitter OSHA- will get you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people tell the truth on Twitter sometimes. No, and, you know, it's it, sometimes it's it's really useful when someone has a, a, a moment of candor. And, and so he retweeted that this was the ultimate workaround to permit the federal government to uh, require individual vaccinations. And, of course, that's really – if you take a look now at every turn, you know, you had mandate the OSHA mandate with regard to employers with more than 100 employees. You had the CMS mandate for healthcare workers. You had the federal contractor mandate. All these, ma- all these sort of various things mandating individuals get vaccinated. There's, and they've all been stayed at this point, uh, all three of those categories. Uh, and there's complex legal arguments, and we can weigh into those, but they all have a common theme, which is to say in each of those cases, the Biden administration was seeking to get around the fact that they don't have the power to tell you as an individual citizen that you need to go and get the jab. So in order to get around that, they're coming, you know, they're doing backflips. They're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. They're trying to say that this is a workplace safety issue or the like in order to try to actually, uh, you know, effectuate that end. And the courts have have so far been been able to see past that. Um, To my mind, it's really interesting as well. Just in the OSHA litigation, we filed a motion just I think it was about a week ago. in which they produce the administrative record. And we, you know, there's just this huge mismatch. The White House has, from day one, said, look, this is about increasing individual vaccination rates. We, we're doing this. We have this, this requirement because it'll cover 80 million Americans. Um, but when you look at the record, it's all about workplace safety, workplace safety, you know, which doesn't even really match how it's written, quite frankly. If you were going to do this for workplace safety, you would probably take into account, oh, I don't know, natural immunity and its impact. You probably wouldn't arbitrarily tie it to whether you have 100 employees, you know, on your in-paper corporation and not how many people you have working in a given space. I mean, there's just tons of problems in this if you're actually doing it to create a safe workplace. But if you're doing it simply to increase individual vaccination rates, well, maybe that's a good way of doing it. The interesting thing is they provided no evidence related to that, related to any communications from the White House with regard to the stated purpose. Uh, And so we filed a motion to compel them to turn over all the records related to, you know, the White House's stated purpose on this increasing individual vaccination rates. Since that seems to be what they're trying to do, even though that's 
OSHA would not be permitted to do that. Yeah, yeah. So when I when I first uh, saw the Biden order, and they were citing some obscure old workplace safety law, I thought to myself, and and this very much gets into the question of 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 delegation. But I'm like, oh no, there probably is some stupid law that was so vaguely written that they found a way to do this wildly unconstitutional thing. Um, but you you guys have argued in in your uh, litigation that that's not there. Yeah. So I mean, first of all, they they pulled out this this thing, uh, the the this ETS, this emergency uh, rule procedure, which has been used only ten times in the in the past fifty years. Last time was several several decades ago. Uh, and it's worth noting. I mean, the track record for administrations on this is not the best. If you were trying to sort of find a procedure to do something, you were tasked with this uh, by the White House. You might have thought twice about this particular procedure because there had been six lawsuits that had been brought against you know uh, these previous uh, these previous rules, and the administration lost in five of those six. Uh, and part of that is. Uh, Congress actually, you know, was mindful of some of the the potential for mischief here, so they actually ratcheted up the standard. You have to, you actually have to show a grave danger, which is a higher standard than normally the regulators have to show. There's a number of other things where it's just the the burden is much higher on the government to go ahead and say we're going to we're going to bypass the normal procedure. We're going to do this quasi legislative act. Uh, on a an expedited basis without getting notice or comment and so forth we're just going to put it into place immediately so so they're already you know they're already starting from behind if you will because the burden is so much uh, is so much more difficult for them to be able to meet this standard and then the courts in looking at this have have applied an even more scrutinous review where they can take a look at things outside the traditional record because essentially because the administration is rushing it through and so they want to make sure that this is actually a reasoned decision making process so one of uh, Thomas Massey the congressman from Kentucky was on my show uh, I think the week that, that the Biden administration announced this this decision, and his theory, which which I think is is even more plausible um, now, was that um, the Biden administration very much knew that this would not survive um, the courts and it was not constitutional, but they thought in the meantime between the announcement and and actually getting struck down in court, they could bully. Um, business America into doing their dirty work for them. And to a certain extent, that's happened. Like people have been fired and, and also employees have risen up um, somewhat famously in, in various airlines and pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do this. Um, what do you think about that theory? Is that, is that part of their game here? Well, you know, I, 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 generally speaking, I'm not one to put words in someone else's mouth but when they functionally say something like that, so White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki the other day was asked after, so the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals had issued a stay against OSHA enforcing the, uh, the mandate, and Jen Psaki made a statement that corporate America should still be you know, marching ahead and continuing to prepare for enforcement, that they had every, every in, in 
incentive and intent to go ahead and make sure that this went, went into force as soon as possible. They were confident that they were going to win, and so corporate America needed to be ready to go ahead and enforce that. So it really does, I mean, you know, I'd certainly heard people speculate prior to the rule, you know, remember, Biden makes the announcement, you know, this this emergency rule will be coming out, you know, any minute now. And then it took two months for them to go ahead and issue the rule. Um, and, you know, some people noted, you know, to a certain extent for the administration, this was sort of the best of all worlds. You you know, the uh, uh, the companies were in a position where they probably couldn't get this in place overnight. So they began going ahead and uh, starting the machinery to put the put the rule into place all the while that no one could sue over it until the rule finally was out so it was kind of like a litigation free zone for a while whereas of course the day they went ahead and dropped the rule we uh, the Buckeye Institute on behalf of our clients marched into court as did a number of other folks uh, and filed not just uh, uh, a challenge to it but also sought to get it stayed immediately. Uh, Senator Mike Lee was on last week and and he of course just finished a Senate fight where he forced an amendment on the Senate floor um, to get on the record who supported vaccine mandates and who didn't. Um, but his theory on that two-month delay was that it was that also was on purpose because it prevented guys like you from from launching a constitutional challenge. So two months of radical uncertainty for the business community, two months of people getting fired even if they have natural immunity um, and the, it sort of reinforces this theory that that they really are using this as a threat to businesses to do their dirty work for them oh absolutely I mean you take a look and and threat you know backed up by massive fines uh, for non-compliance that would be you know draconian um, yeah, you know, but I, I think it's also worth looking at I mean we're taught when we talk about what it's going to do to the biz- what it potentially could do to the business community. Talking about what it's going to, you know, and, and there's plenty to say about what it does to individual liberty and the potential impacts it would have on that. But then there are, there are the unintended consequences, which I think could be absolutely enormous. I mean, we've all had the problems. You go to the grocery store. I mean, we went to the store a few weeks ago, and they were completely out of chicken. You know, when when has that happened? Or, you know, or someone's going to buy a car, and you, you can't because of the chip shortage. I mean, there's supply chain issues. I was out in California probably about six weeks ago, uh, and I'd never seen anything like it. The ships uh, on the horizon, 108 ships waiting to be unloaded. So you've got the, you know, the labor shortages, the supply chain issues that are, that are troubling everyone. Uh, mark my words. If the OSHA mandate, vaccine mandate, is allowed to go into effect, you've only begun to see empty shelves. Yeah. It will have devastating impacts. And so let me give you an example involving one of my clients. And you know, I'll say for all the, the companies that might be you know, being cowed into going ahead and doing sort of pre-enforcement, I'm particularly proud of the companies that I'm representing and the stand that they're taking for their employees, for individual liberty. Uh, and so one of the companies, Philips, uh, is uh, Philips Manufacturing uh, and Tower Company. They make welded, shield, welded steel tubing 
Uh, and it's the sort of thing you go out to your car, the air conditioning very likely has their product in it. Uh, in your home, your furnace probably has their product in it. It's used in a lot of consumer applications. Um, as it is, so she's got 104 employees. She's just barely over the regulatory limit of 100 employees. Um, like everyone else, she's having trouble actually getting employees. She's got, right now, I think seven openings that she's been trying to fill. She pays good wages. She does on-the-job training. Um, she She's big on giving people second chances, so she reaches out to people who've been released from prison. She does all kinds of work to, to increase her workforce. Cannot fill those spaces, and so everyone in her shop is working overtime, 10 hours a day, six days a week, um, to meet the production requirements. If uh, right now she went ahead and did a couple of things. First of all, she's had COVID herself. She went ahead uh, and checked for natural immunity. So she went ahead and did antibody testing of all of her employees. And what she found is that there are at least 16 employees above and beyond those who have been vaccinated who demonstrated immunity. Uh, so they have the natural immunity, which you know, we cite in our briefs, the studies that show that natural immunity can be longer lasting, it can be more resilient. Uh, you know, there's evidence now suggesting individuals are probably less susceptible to certain of the variants if they've got, if they have natural immunity. Um, so, of course, none of that taken into account by the vaccine mandate, which is all about the jab or nothing. Um, so she first did that. She then went ahead and surveyed her employees to see what, how they would respond. If, in fact, if she were pressed and she were required to comply with the vaccine mandate. So um, she's got 17 employees who said that uh, they would quit or be fired rather than comply with the requirement. Another 27 said if she paid for the weekly testing, they would comply with weekly testing and stay on. The first 17 wouldn't even do that. Um, if, she, you know, looking at the, her business, if she loses you know, roughly 20 employees above and beyond what she has, she won't even be able to meet the basic production requirements. And, it, you know, it, it goes downstream from there. She literally faces potentially up to $25,000 an hour penalties if she's not able to meet the requirements of some of the downstream suppliers who if they then have to shut down their production lines. Um, so it's you know it's one of these things. You so even downstream, that's 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 wild. Yeah. You, so you be you're potentially going to see just this cascading impact. Yeah. Let alone you know some of the things that we've all been hearing about, sort of if it impacts the truck driving companies and, and so forth. I mean, literally, you could see that the supply chain just grinding to a halt um, if you have if these companies are put in a position where they simply have to fire a large number of quali well, well-trained, qualified individuals who are currently working there uh, who are not a risk to their fellow employees. So she's one of your plaintiffs. Um, tell, tell me some other stories about plaintiffs and, and talk to the extent you can about just how do you find people that are willing to stick their necks out? Because I assume it's easier to hide. Oh, yeah. Now, I, you know, in terms of that, and... It, it's one of those things you, when I talk to uh, uh, some potential plaintiffs, I mean, you, you'll have a situation where where they'll be 
they'll be in and they'll get pressure from you know other folks within their business community or or they'll recognize you know they don't want to be in a position where where they're going to get canceled i mean it's these are right. very real serious concerns and there's always an implicit sort of regulatory threat that will unleash the hounds the government will unleash the hounds on you and 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 they're always going to find something even if it's not there yeah yeah no i mean uh, uh it, it's the sort of thing uh uh Nixon famously, of course, used the IRS, and that's been uh, an unfortunate tactic, which we've seen uh, in other administrations where there were politically motivated IRS investigations and the like. And so, uh, you know, I think those sorts of specters always weigh uh, in the minds of individuals or, or companies before they engage in doing a pushback against a government priority. Um, but it, it sounds like with, with Phillips, is that the name of the company? Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like this is an existential threat to their business. So it's kind of all or nothing, maybe. Well, in, in you know, we're looking at. I mean, we were able to quantify the cost to her business, even if you know, she's able to continue meeting production, uh, and if she's not, it would be massively more. It would be at least a million dollars a year uh, that she would be facing in the first year with regard to that. Which I mean, that's. That, that would be absolutely devastating. But I think for her, I mean, it's also just the principle of the matter. She understands, once again, if OSHA is permitted to do this, there's just no, it's Katie bar the door yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, so you take a look, you know, our, we have another client, Six Art Corporation, so they do specialty packaging. Um, and ironically, they among the things they package are pharmaceuticals, um, both over-the-counter and prescription pharmaceuticals. They've got a couple of locations. Um, you know, they actually point out, in some ways, the flip side of the problem. They already have such a hard time getting employees. They re rely quite a bit on independent contractors, short-term workers, you know, who come in, uh, you know, who are who they're able to hire, uh, you know, sort of as needed. And they've got about a hundred people working in their shops on any given day who are working there, at, you know, uh, as an independent contractor on a short-term basis. Those individuals aren't covered by the vaccine mandate. So here it is, you know, again, if you were crafting a rule in order to actually pr create workplace safety, um, why is it that, again, you sort of create these arbitrary distinctions between people who are employees and people who are independent contractors? Obviously, you could have everyone in the uh, on the shop floor there vaccinated who's a full-time employee, but if you've got 100 people on the floor who aren't, then, you know, Presumptively, that would cause a problem for OSHA. Um, and it goes to the fact that this, this is a really poorly crafted rule if what you're seeking to do uh, is to create safe, a safe workplace. So one, one thing that, that you realize, and you know, the Biden administration is, is bullying um, businesses into doing this, and, and it, it looks from the outside like, like big corporations were sort of the first to fall in line, but they've managed to make the business owners and you know the, the bosses, the bad guys in this instance. Um, but the stories you're telling me are the opposite of that because, because the, the principle of the matter is actually defending the rights of your, your workers and you know, their sort of um, autonomy to make healthcare decisions for themselves instead of being bullied into it. Um, that, that story needs to be told because so much it's like, um, you know, the whole 
the whole narrative is like uh, business owners versus workers, but this is a case where, um, and we know this, like their their interests align. Um, you can't you can't run a good business without good people. Oh, absolutely. And 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 so you look at a situation again, like Phillips. Um, you know, she was able to find out this information because she's got a good work, good relationship with her employees. She's provided you know the healthcare screening for them. Uh, before any of this happened and was able to do the antibody screening as part of that, um, you know, and and really is interested in making sure um, that their liberty interests are protected as well. Yeah. So this this is probably outside the scope of, of your litigation, but do you have an opinion about workers that have been fired preemptively um, as companies try to comply with this Biden mandate that may or may not ever happen. Um, do employees have any rights? That depends. That, that's, that's very much uh, a state-by-state state question, uh, you know, in terms of how it is that... What I kind shouldn't of say rights, but they, they have a claim yeah. to, to have been damaged. So, I, again, their ability to, to, to vindicate of that claim is going to depend on state law uh, in many cases in terms of what they're, you know, whether they have at-will employment or the like. And in many states, an employer would have the ability to, uh, unless there's some other countervailing requirement, would have the ability to fire an employee who failed to to, uh, to take a vaccine. Um, unless you have seen some states that have gone ahead and passed uh, no no vaccine mandate requirements. And so I was just actually chatting with a reporter the other day because in in the wake of the stays, for instance, um, when the CMS stay came out, the question was, okay, well, what happens if you're a healthcare worker then in, in a state that has a no mandate requirement and the federal mandate is stayed? Uh, and the the answer would seem to be, I mean, again, not knowing all the particulars, that at that point your employer would not be permitted uh, to require you to to uh, to get the vaccine or be fired. So, so uh, again, there's probably so not this a is something answer. like um, Ron DeSantis has done something like this. Is that correct? I believe I believe he has. I believe that there's one in Texas as well. Although someone had told me there may have been some litigation that may have put that provision in Texas on hold, but I, I'm not positive on that. Yeah, like as you probably know, libertarians debate this, and and um, and I, I'm sort of I'm sort of sympathetic to what DeSantis has done, just because the alternative is is more odious than than mandating that a business can't do it. But in a in a perfect world, we wouldn't be telling businesses what to do. Yeah, no, I mean there there certainly has been, and I've seen there's been certainly concerns associated with mandates running either way, mandating companies to be the enforcer or mandating companies that they can't uh, set their own internal policy with regard to uh, masks or vaccines or the like. Um, It is sort of interesting. I mean, you know, the backdrop when you're taking a moment and talking about sort of the federal state distinction, I mean, a lot of this in terms of for instance, the state's ability to require 
uh, or to mandate individual states goes back to this old case, Jacobson uh, versus Massachusetts from 1905. And a lot of the discussion in general with regard to um, vaccine mandates, uh, you know, ultimately goes back to this case. And it's kind of interesting. I think it's been misread in a number of ways. Um, this was uh, uh, a, a statute that allowed localities to require smallpox vaccination. A couple of things. Number one, it explicitly just was a state statute. So that really doesn't go to, doesn't support the federal, um, you know, any kind of a federal mandate. Uh, but additionally, the requirement was backed up with a $5 fine. And, you know, which is probably about, if I recall correctly, about $155 in 2021 dollars. Um, so, I mean, non-trivial, but not the same as take the jab or, you know, you're going to lose your employment, your livelihood, take the jab, or your employer's gonna be hit with $14,000 per incident fi incidence fines. So it's sort of a, something that's different in kind in terms of the penalty uh, that we're talking about. But the other thing is, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I feel like, you know, if you take a look, that decision was relied upon by one of the most infamous Supreme Court decisions in, you know, modern history, Buck versus Bell, uh, which was a case in which uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, went ahead and upheld a statute that uh, Requ uh, required forced sterilization so that you know most people if they know that case for anything they know it for the quote you know three generations of idiots are enough uh if if that quote isn't enough to raise some questions about the decision um the the where it actually relied on jacobson it said you know essentially that the logic of of jacobson with regard to compelling vaccinations was sufficient to support cutting fallopian tubes uh, you know, and that's roughly a, almost a, an ex, uh, exact quote. It just let that sit yeah. out there for a moment. I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's, it is shocking, I think, to even hear those words said. And, and it goes to why, really, Bach versus Bell um, has become an anti-precedent, uh, which is to say, I mean, you know, you sort of learn about there are these these decisions that you hear about in law school that are ha, have become so odious. You know, they may not have expressly been struck down by the court, but they almost don't need to be. You know, we look back at them and we recognize their mistake, and they're almost always cited, if they are at all, to show how, you know, for the the principle that they were wrong. And and so the idea that that uh, you know, the origins of Buck really was in Jacobson and the idea that government could force you uh, uh, to take a vaccine. You know, this should give us pause about whether or not this is a, a great precedent to be relying upon for forced vaccinations. That's a, that's a, that's a great and powerful point, and I'm going to steal it from you. Please so. steal away. Because <laughs> I've been, I just, uh, as, as a libertarian, I just had a visceral reaction against forcing people to take the jab against their will. Um, but I've been trying to use some historical analogies that are appropriate, and that, that one seems pretty powerful. So give us, a, um, give us a sense for where the litigation is, because uh, I'm afraid, and, and going back to, to, to what Senator Lee, the fight he had on the Senate floor last week, um, a lot of his Republican colleagues 
wanted him to stand down because they were saying he was just virtue signaling because uh, the courts will take care of this, which, <laughs> which, which for Senator Lee is, is a total abdication of, of legislative responsibilities. But um, there is sort of an assumption we've, we've had some success or, or you guys and others have had success. Where are we at and, and what happens next? Well, I'll start with, you know, I, 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 you know, offering my, my, my thanks to Senator Lee that he, he didn't abdicate his responsibility. I think, I think far too often you, we see this by the legislature that they're, uh, or the executive in certain cases, where they're more than happy to punt questions to the court and not recognize their own role in interpreting, you know, interpreting constitutional rights uh, and, and in interpreting the limits of constitutional authority by the laws that they choose to enact or choose not to enact. So, so always useful for, for the legislature to actually play its role in protecting, protecting constitutional limitations appropriately. So where we're at, for, this is a, a, just, you know, quite frankly, a weird, wacky um, sort of statutory scheme. Uh, again, this ETS procedure. So you began with lawsuits were filed in every circuit with the exception of the federal circuit in the country. Uh, so uh, all 11 plus the District of Columbia. Um, Ten days late, we, we filed, as I mentioned, ours in the Sixth Circuit, filed the initial challenge, filed for a, a stay immediately. The Sixth Circuit began chugging along with their, uh, 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 with their expedited briefing schedule. The Fifth Circuit, and that's the circuit that covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, they went ahead and issued a stay very quickly against the mandate. Uh, and then, the, I think it was literally like the, something like a day or so after uh, the Fifth Circuit issued its decision, um, it was 10 days after the, the rule had been dropped, by statute, all the cases, literally uh, ping pong balls, were put into a barrel, uh, and this multi-district litigation panel went ahead and cho uh, chose randomly the circuit to which all the cases went, which ended up being the Sixth Circuit where we had filed. Um, so all the cases now are consolidated in the w one circuit. Uh, the federal government went ahead and asked the Sixth Circuit to uh, vacate the stay so that the rule can go into force. Uh, and the briefing continues on that. Their, la their final brief is due tomorrow uh, on the 10th. Um, uh, and then I, I anticipate that they're gonna the court will rule fairly quickly on that. Uh, th right after the case got shifted, the cases all got shifted to the sixth, uh, the Buckeye Institute uh, asked the full Sixth Circuit to hear the case. And so, I mean, this is just, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but right now the case is assigned to a three-judge panel. We don't know yet who those three judges are, um, but you know, there is the option for on rare occasion where a case is of great public importance and raises significant uh, questions to go ahead and have the full 16 judges hear the case on an initial basis. Uh, and so we asked them to do that in large measure. Look, I mean, this is not only is this an important case, but it's important to get the, you talked about sort of the lack of certainty and the issues that that business and individuals are facing. It's important for us to actually get this case resolved quickly and finally so that people can know what it is they have to do, so that businesses can know what it is that they have to do. 
Um, and so uh, after we filed for that, a number of the states went ahead and filed in support of, uh, of, our, of our motion. So both of those, those things we should be hearing on, I would guess this month. I would guess we'll know here in December before it is, before the rule is, the rule is slated to take effect if it weren't stayed in January. Uh, and so I think we'll see something as to whether or not the full court will hear the case. Uh, and whether or not they're going to go ahead and keep the case stayed, or the rule stayed, which is to say prevent it from being enforced while the merits of the case is being considered. Um, then they'll set, an ex set a briefing schedule. That hasn't happened yet. My guess is it will be expedited. Um, I mean, just to toss in a couple of other things, whoever loses um, on this stay question, you know, uh, if whether the panel goes ahead and lets it go into effect or prevents it from going into effect, there'll be an opportunity to go ahead and appeal that decision immediately up to the Supreme Court. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and you, so I would expect, I mean, there's a decent likelihood that you'll see something like that happen. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll go on one of my hobby horses. So the, the, you know, this procedure has be become known in sort of, you know, recent days as the shadow docket. You know, this is as if this is something dark and mysterious and untoward. It's what, you know, sort of lawyers would ordinarily call the motions docket. It's just the emergency procedure. So it's what what's used in every death penalty case. It's what's used in every emergency case involving voting rights. It's, you know, anything where there's, you know, a particular urgency on a stay, for instance, and you take it up to the court. That's that's the procedure. So uh, so I would anticipate, again, uh, a decent shot that whoever loses at uh, on the stay will go ahead and ask the court to uh, to the Supreme Court to decide that question on an expedited basis. So we may may end up getting a hint from the Supreme Court as to what the justices are thinking sooner rather than later. So it um, and this this reminds me a little bit of the the litigation on on Obamacare, where. Um, again, too many legislators sort of put their all their eggs in the, the Supreme Court basket. And there's no reason to believe with any radical certainty that, that the right thing will happen. Yeah, no, well, uh, you know, a couple of thoughts on different, that. Different court. Different court. A, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, who would have thought that we would be sitting here in 2021 and, you know, reminiscing about the good old days when all we were concerned with was, you know, whether or not government could force you to buy health insurance? Yeah. You know, doesn't that seem like, you know, simpler, happier days? The, the salad days. Yeah. You know, as opposed to whether or not they can actually, you know, force you to take a vaccine or strip away your livelihood. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, no, the... Uh, you know, if you take if you take a look, um, you know, sort of at what happened there. I mean, the interesting thing in this case is arguably Congress, and it's one of the things. If you take a look at the stay that was issued by the Fifth Circuit and 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 you know the briefing that we filed so far, reasonably clear that Congress did not actually give OSHA the authority to regulate in the way it's regulating. I mean, and that's really one of the big concerns in the case. I mean, there's nothing in the statute that would support the idea that OSHA has the authority to regulate individual vaccination decisions um, that are dressed up as if they're workplace safety, which is really what's occurring here. And 
and so uh, you know, in 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 that sense, in particular, yes, it it's helpful for Congress to double down and say, no, we really mean this. They don't have the authority, but you know, generally speaking, the the courts have have required when you're making a there's something called the major questions doctrine. If you're making a huge change in the law, um, Scalia said, look, Congress is not in the business of hiding elephants in mouse holes. If they're trying to make that big, give this much authority, upset the federal state balance in this way, deal with something that's such a major source of public concern, they probably wouldn't have done it, you know, using the word necessary in a statute. They probably would have been a bit, you know, they need to be clearer than that. They have to issue a clear statement as to as to the authority of the agency to do that. And so in this case, you know, I would argue Congress actually has not given the authority. I mean, and, and in that sense, they, they have sort of weigh, weighed in on this. But it's very useful, obviously, for them to, to double down and say, let, you know, have someone like Senator Lee say, let me be perfectly clear. Uh, this is beyond the authority of the agency uh, yeah. to, to engage in. Well, this this has been super helpful. Um, I learned a lot about about the process, and I, I think I think we should all be vigilant because it ain't over, um, and it's such a fundamental precedent that it would be a sea change. How would people if uh, give people some homework assignments? I know you had a Wall Street Journal piece, and tell us where to find out more about Buckeye. Sure. Uh, Probably the easiest way is to go to buckeyeinstitute.org, uh, and we've got a whole case page with regard to to the uh, the litigation against the OSHA mandate. Uh, you can see other other uh, publications there. Uh, there'll be a link, I think, to my Wall Street Journal piece as well as to Angela Phillips did a piece for Real Clear Policy where she talks about um, you know why it is that she decided to sue and the impact that it's going to have on her as an employer. So all kinds of great resources there uh, where they can learn more about the case and what's going on there. So normally, um, you may not know this, but we have an informal policy here that we don't really like people from Ohio coming on the show because they tend to be Browns fans. But through rigorous vetting, we discovered that you you have a more enlightened perspective. Yes. Now, and, and see, this is I, I, I fear I'm going to get all kinds of hate mail in Ohio, but I'm a lifelong Steelers fan. All so right. uh, And being in Columbus, it's, it, you know, it's, uh, it's almost equidistant. I, you know, I can I can get uh, I, I can get out to Pittsburgh just about as quickly as I can get to uh, to Cleveland. So, Joel so. Joel's looking a little frustrated over there, but uh, we I I don't know how you slipped through the vetting process actually, <laughs> but as you know, Terry and I are are born and raised in Western Pennsylvania, so we we appreciate your your willingness to be heroic on that subject. <laughs> and, and thanks, this was awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm-hmm.